What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Jesse Lund is the head of blockchain solutions at IBM. In this conversation, we discuss enterprise blockchains, how IBM is using the technology, what their customers are saying, and what Jesse sees as the most important things for the future of crypto. This conversation was fascinating, and I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, The Grove. As many of you know, branding and online presence is crucial to the crypto space. With so many damn scams out there, it's tough to tell who's legit. The Grove, however, is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Branding isn't just about looking pretty though, dot, 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 like me. The Grove understands it's about driving revenue. If you want to check out what they're doing, you can go to thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's thegrove.co, not .com, co, new age stuff, thegrove.co backslash pomp. Let's crash their servers and light up the webpage. Let me know when you do it and I'll shoot you some fire emojis on Twitter. Thegrove.co slash pomp. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I've got uh, Jesse here. I'm super excited to have this conversation because uh, everyone hears about IBM and blockchain, but nobody actually knows what's going on. So Jesse is here to answer all of our questions. Thank you very much for joining. Um, Good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, All right, let's go through kind of your background real quick so that everyone has uh, has an understanding of your perspective and then uh, we can get into how you got into crypto. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, um, I've been with IBM two years now, just almost celebrating a two year anniversary. It's coming up here in a, in a few weeks. Um, prior to that, um, I was a banker, uh, 18 years at, uh, at Wells Fargo, uh, did a little stint at uh, union bank, um, uh, and have had a variety of roles around bank commercial side to the consumer side, to the wealth management side, technology side. So I've got a real good, I think, holistic perspective of banking, which is what, um, I think really attracted IBM to this, um, to the potential and the, the group that I came here to, to, uh, build. Got it. And then how did you first come across whether it's Bitcoin, one of the other cryptos or blockchain, what kind of walk us through that initial experience and what you thought? Yeah. So, um, one of my roles at uh, Wells Fargo was, um, managing the enterprise innovation lab. Um, and so, I was managing uh, an R&D portfolio, and yes, banks do have uh, R&D budgets um, uh, of a number of things, in addition to kind of managing the overall lab uh, and the lab infrastructure. And uh, cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, came across uh, the project list right around 2013, 2014. Um, And it was the capital markets group within Wells Fargo that um, was trying to understand what this thing was and wanted to to write... um, uh, a paper about it, kind of a position paper um, for you know for their institutional investors primarily, uh, and so we ended 
ended up doing some experimentation with Bitcoin. We actually bought nine Bitcoin way, way back in the day, 2013, 14 timeframe. So it didn't cost much. Um, and you know, we were, we were brand new as a group of about three of us just playing around with it. We didn't really have a full appreciation for, you know, key management and cryptography and how that all worked. And so I'm sad to say, um, that we lost those bitcoins. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> right? you know, there was no such thing as wallets. So you know, somebody was carrying around the you know the the private key, uh, and it just got swept up by the you know by the janitor on the the sticky note that it was sitting on somebody's desk. So there's nine uh, unclaimed uh, uh, bitcoins out there that uh, Wells Fargo once once owned and are now uh, lost forever. Got it. And uh, what was the general? Um kind of sentiment internally, right? It, it, were people uh, intrigued as they learned about this stuff or maybe even saw some of the stuff you guys were doing? Um, were they scared of it? Can, just walk me through maybe not the people directly in your group, but others in the organization. Uh, what was that reaction or sentiment like? Yeah. So it, you know, interestingly, it varied um, uh, from kind of a, a, a polar perspective, very similarly to the way it does today. What I've noticed that there's very few people in the middle ground of crypto supporters and you know crypto deterrents. I'll, I'll call them. There's believers and there's there's unbelievers. And and there were um, believers and unbelievers way back then uh, inside the bank, all the way up um, you know to the top of the house. Uh, and it, so that was really interesting. Uh, really interesting to see. I don't think there was a, a fear amongst the um, the non-believers, I'll call it, but um, there was certainly a skepticism around this notion of a, a store of value that had no central authority behind it. Kind of the same things that we still hear about today. Uh, and there was also, you know, the misconceptions that we still hear about today that you know, oh, it's only going to be used for, you know, nefarious activities. Um, it's only going to be used by, by criminals. Um, I didn't have as clear and I think as pointed uh, of a perspective back then that I do now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of the same uh, sentiment and rhetoric that we hear today um, that we did back then. For sure. And so, um, obviously it's pretty cool that, uh, that early on, um, you know, you, you guys, uh, even got, approval and, and, uh, and we're willing to kind of jump in and, uh, interact with Bitcoin and, and crypto, uh, Wells Fargo. What, um, what, what led to, uh, the, the move to IBM and kind of walk me through, uh, maybe some of the stuff that you guys are doing uh, at IBM now. Yeah. So it, it was really that, you know, uh, activity at Wells Fargo and the, and just reflecting back on, on the, the excitement that I think a few of us had as we really, you know, continue to dig into Bitcoin and not so much what it was, I mean, cause there were always some clunky parts about it, but it represented and the future that it, that it held. And so, um, you know, I continued, um, to manage the, uh, the bit, the digital currency kind of assessment strategy and what became the distributed ledger technology strategy for the bank. And, and of course I had a lot of interaction with IBM because IBM and Wells Fargo are, really long time, um, long standing, um, you know, customer vendor relationship there. So it was kind of a natural progression. I ran into, uh, um, a, a guy named uh, Jerry Cuomo, who I, I would say is sort of the godfather of, of, uh, blockchain here at, at, at IBM, a distinguished uh, fellow here, a super smart guy. And we ran into each other at money 2020, um, and just started kicking around, uh, 
uh, you know, ideas and opinions about uh, crypto. And uh, at some point during that conversation, it just dawned on me that this was uh, no longer a, a friendly conversation, but was kind of a job interview. And, and the rest after that is sort of history. That's awesome. And so maybe, um, you know, talk through some of the work you guys are doing uh, right now around, um, you know, working with, uh, with clients and even internally um, utilizing blockchain and, and different crypto technologies. Yeah. So um, the, I think, and you, you've been following this for a while, so you know, there's there this uh, kind of reaction that, that um, to, to Bitcoin that has been precipitated by a few, you know, kind of uh, prominent personalities in, in the industry and in banking industry and so forth um, led to uh, you know, a, a divorce of what I'll call, you know, some of the enabling technology, i.e. blockchain from, you know, the, the, um, the Bitcoin value proposition itself. And I think in some ways that was a good thing. In some ways that was a bad thing. Um, it was a good thing because it spawned over the last several years, a sizable amount of investment in um, blockchain technology and, you know, by IBM, by, by, by a number of, of others. Um, and so IBM, uh, has been using blockchain technology, uh, proper, um, as an, as an emerging technology to really, uh, you know, streamline, um, and improve all sorts of, you know, existing operational business processes, supply chain management, um, is, and, and provenance related, use cases are, are the most prominent, right? Um, where you want to be able to create and form, um, permissioned networks, um, very, very quickly, um, that, you know, embody that whole distributed compute and consensus and, and creating trust among parties who otherwise would have to take a really long time to kind of trust each other and to build, to build networks together. So, um, so the group has, has coalesced around that. Uh, we literally have, you know, over a thousand blockchain professionals working on hundreds of projects around the world across a whole bunch of different uh, industries. I was brought in uh, really to lead the financial services industry and in particular um, to build out a, a portfolio of solutions where um, IBM is recognized technology is not only transformational to or for its clients, but it's also transformational for itself in terms of how it engages with its clients. So, and what I mean by that is um, IBM uh, now as a, you know, a technology partner, but also, uh, you know, a software provider, uh, you know, global system integrator, and, you know, a multinational company with operations literally in much every country of the world, we have a lot of um, delivery credibility. And so we now have the capacity to be involved in some of these projects in developing new types of networks and new types of solutions. And so I was kind of hired to, to come in and, and develop that, that model and that portfolio for financial services specifically, which is the, the single largest, you know, operating segment of, of IBM as a whole. Got it. That, uh, that makes a ton of sense. And maybe let's talk about the, uh, the clients, right? The, the people out who um, have these technological challenges, how much of the blockchain work today is push versus pull? 
right? Are they pulling you guys in and saying, hey, you know, we really need X, Y, Z um, type solutions and we think blockchain can be it. Can you help us? Uh, or, or is the majority of it, you know, you guys have identified certain uh, business segments that uh, have, um, you know, areas where blockchain could improve and you're going out and you're educating them and, 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 uh, and really showing them the power of the technology. Uh, where, where does it kind of uh, th- that balance lay? Yeah, well, it's definitely, it's definitely both, um, it, you know, because there are, um, you know, big, big companies and IBM, you know, is a, is a, is a vendor for, for a lot of companies around the world. And a lot of these, sure. um, large companies have big R and D and innovation teams. I mean, it's, it's kind of in vogue, you know, for big companies to have a chief innovation officer. And so we get a lot of calls because they're, they're reading the same news, uh, that, that we're reading. Um, and, and we're making some of that news, you know, too, with the, the, um, the technology that we're investing in. Uh, so it, it, there, there is a lot of pull. Um, there's a lot of pull from, um, from companies across different industries that have, you know, a, a need to optimize business processes. They've got some pain points, um, you know, and so they're pulling us in. Invariably though, we do get involved in, in education. Um, and, you know, the one thing I told my wife when I first started uh, at uh, at IBM is uh, I felt like I was a pretty smart guy. You know, coming out of Wells Fargo, uh, in most of the initial meetings I, I I was in with the internal folks and all of the engineers and IBM research here, I always felt like the dumbest guy in the room. So there's a lot of really smart people um, at IBM who really understand this at a really detailed level, and that's important because it still is kind of complicated technology, right? And I think, um, you know, that's where in some areas, um, and, you know, believe it or not, it's, I would say it's been a little bit more of a push with the, the client segment that I represent with, you know, with the banks and, and the central banks and, and uh, financial institutions than it is with other industries, um, at which I actually find really ironic and it was a little bit of a surprise to me, but I, I guess it shouldn't be because, um, you know, these financial institutions are conservative by nature, uh, and they've got a lot invested into their existing, you know, IT portfolios. And so the introduction of, of net new technology like this, um, is something that, you know, any prudent CIO is going to proceed with caution. And it, and it's so brand new. That's the thing is, you know, the, the market is so, um, uh, I don't know, impatient uh, with, with a lot of things. But what, what I've seen is um, so much progress, whether it's us kind of evolving it like we have been doing a lot um, in, you know, in the payment space in, um, in financial services, because we see that and particularly international payments is some, some low hanging fruit. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, people want it, want it now. And, and sometimes I think the industry forgets that Blockchain's really only been around proper for, you know, three or four years and, and Bitcoin prior to that, which was the catalyst of all this, you know, only for 10 years. And for the first five years, everybody ignored it. Right. Uh, so uh, it, it's just an amazing time, honestly, a uh, really exciting time. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 I'm, I'm so excited to be here. For sure. What what is the um, most interesting use case that you've seen somebody try to apply blockchain technology to, um, and, and work with you guys on? 
Because and the reason I'm asking this question is you guys have uh, incredible um, reach on a global basis. So you see different jurisdictions, you see different types of companies, right? Everyone is um, somewhere in the IBM orbit, just given your size and, and how long you guys have been around. But what, what's those interesting use cases that you've seen that have surprised you? Well, I think there's some really novel ones out outside of of my industry, and I'll, I'll you know I want to hit one that maybe is outside of my industry, um, and then you know focus on the ones that are inside financial services that I'm really excited about. But I, I think you know when I first came here, there was there was uh, an application that the company was all, already uh, building to track um, the, um, the, the movement, the ownership of diamonds from, you know, like from the ground, you know, to the vault, to, you know, the, the ring, uh, on, you know, someone's finger. And I, 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 I always thought that was really cool because, you know, you, you, you go buy a diamond. I don't, I don't know if you're a married guy. I remember when I was buying my wife, my, uh, her, her engagement ring, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know this thing from, from anything, I don't know where this has been. I don't know this is a piece of glass that's been, you know, that's been uh, in the street just outside, you know. And I thought it was really cool that um, these diamonds, which are uh, oftentimes um, engraved with serial numbers, can now ultimately be tracked literally from, you know, their discovery to their current state and then even beyond that um, to the initial sale and to the resale. And I thought that's really cool. That could apply to a lot of things to, you know, like, uh, works of art, um, wine and could avoid, you know, counterfeiting and, and, uh, all sorts of really cool things. So I, I think when I first got here, that was, you know, a big aha moment that, wow, this has really much broader applicability, um, than I've really been thinking. Cause you know, here I am kind of a banker or financial services guy by trade. But, um, but where I really get excited about, uh, about it and what we've worked on, um, I would say the most exciting thing is, is the work in and around, um, the, the central banks. So here you have, you know, the, uh, the, the elite of the establishment or the epitome of the establishment, right? Um, the, the entities that, um, that are defining monetary policy that are literally, you know, creating money. Um, and, uh, you know, creating the, the rules around, you know, how, how money is created, um, and, and managed and the idea of, um, a central bank being involved in the creation of a, a, a new type of digital asset, you know, a new type of, of digital currency that's inspired by something, you know, um, like, like Bitcoin only 10 years ago is really profound. So, you know, we've been in and talking with, you know, dozens of, of central banks over the last um, couple of years. One meeting I remember with, um, uh, Reichsbank, which is the central bank of Sweden, um, which is uh, really cool. Cause it's the, it's the oldest, continuously operating central bank in the world. I think last year they celebrated their 350th year of continuous um, operations. Um, and uh, they have this really um, uh, awesome uh, vision around um, digital currencies and a cashless society. And, you know, I just think, you know, I, I have kids now and I have my, my son, you know, was my youngest was born into a world that, that never knew the world without the internet. And so I just think about, you know, paradigm shifts and transformations and here I'm living through one. He's not going to be able to remember what it looked like before, but, but I am. And being able to be on the cusp of that where, where money goes truly digital, um, you know, where those barriers break down, where, you know, money moves as 
as easily as, as emails or text messages move today uh, is, is profound to be able to think that not only is that coming for real, um, but um, when it comes, it's going to be you know, here to stay. Absolutely. What is the central bank's view? I, I think most people would um, find it not surprising that they're excited about blockchain technology, right? The, the, the technology itself, I think, is fairly well accepted across the financial services. But central banks in general, um, and I don't know if you've had these conversations or not, but with Bitcoin, right? Because it's kind of the, the, the more edgy, uh, you know, less accepted um, application of the blockchain technology. But have you found that they are um, relatively receptive to all applications? Do they want to focus on specifics like, you know, more enter- enterprise blockchain type stuff? Or is there openness to uh, Bitcoin and some of the benefits and what it may even be able to do for them? Well, again, it, it varies. Um, so if you read, uh, you know, there's, there's papers that are coming out all the time. You know, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements is, is really, you know, an, an entity that's owned by the, the central banks. And so, you know, they produce a lot of work. And I think, but, you know, some of the opinions expressed, certainly the central banks are, are, are being cautious, um, in their their progress in this space, but, but I what I've discovered, you know, having talked to a lot of central banks, the big ones, you know, the big three or five, um, some really small ones um, in Asia, in in the South Pacific, um, the the sentiment really varies. There there was a um, uh, we were in a meeting with the deputy governor of uh, uh, one of the uh, central banks in uh, in Asia. And uh, it was, a, it was a, just a profound moment where this deputy governor, who I think was responsible for monetary policy, and the chief economist, by the way, of the central bank was in, was in the room too. And she made this amazing comment. She said, um, you know, first of all, uh, the, her, their intentions in looking at it was uh, the technology in general um, and, and Bitcoin and this concept of, of cryptocurrencies uh, was um, the, what she called the, the noble task of improving the life of the migrant worker. And I, you know, I was kind of inspired by that right, right off the bat, but you know, then she said, we're, we're, we're actually looking at and being faced with this, um, this, this challenge with two equally unacceptable options on the one side. It's like ignore cryptos, ignore Bitcoin completely. And on the other side, it's, um, you know, it's make them illegal. Right. So, and she's like, we know we can't do either of those. And so we know there's some, something in between. Um, but I do think that, you know, and even there's been some economic papers, I'm kind of going way back, you know, even into my, you know, uh, early, early years before, you know, I, I was doing anything more than, you know, playing baseball on the corner, but there, there's an economist named Hayek who, who I've since recently found has published some works around um, the denationalization of, of currencies and this idea of, of choices in currencies issued by non-bank or non-central agencies, right? And the economic benefits of that. Um, if you haven't read Hayek's stuff, you go go get some of his stuff and read it. But I, I think it's profound that there are economists that were forward thinking as 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 early as the as the 70s, uh, early 70s, 
um, that, you know, that completely predates even the, the, the fractional notion of, of, uh, of digital currencies, of Bitcoin, of, of things like that. So, so it does vary. It varies across the board. I won't say any, any central bank is saying, oh yeah, you know, we're, going to somehow support Bitcoin. I don't think any of them are, are saying that, but what they're doing is they're looking at things like Bitcoin, autonomous um, stores of value, um, and the balance between that and just a shared ledger, which is, you know, kind of where the enterprise blockchain space is focused, you know, um, where I think enterprise blockchain do- doesn't, doesn't include is this notion of a store and transfer of value. And if anybody uh, or any entity needs to be focused on that. It's the central banks. For sure. The, the part that's so interesting to me around central banks and, and, um, Bitcoin specifically is this idea that, um, there is no need for them to do this, um, until there is right. And, and what I mean by that is there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be created and they all seem to follow each other. And there's an element of if somebody somewhere else who I respect is doing something and it's working, then we should at least have a conversation about it. Doesn't mean that we'll do it, but we should talk about it. And it feels like Bitcoin is the ultimate um, kind of prisoner's dilemma, if you will, or FOMO, where people who, if one central bank starts buying and is publicly known, it will lead to others buying more from a defensive position than anything else. I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad, but but what do you think about that general kind of sequence of events? Is that probable or, or more unlikely than, than maybe I think? Well, I, I, I think you're right about how the central banks, it, it is, it is a, a band of brotherhood and, and sisterhood. They all, it's a closed, it's a close community and they do tend to, to follow each other. And the little, the little, the smaller nations are often hesitant to do anything that's radically different than what the, the larger nations uh, are saying. I do think though, it's, it's improbable, it, it's, it's improbable that, that a central bank, you know, and many of these central banks hold, hold cash reserves. They hold reserves of, of other currencies, which is what stabilizes ultimately their currency, right? So they're, they're, they've got their peg to some basket of currencies. I think it's very unlikely that any central bank will will um, will ever hold or hold coin as part of their reserves. I could be wrong, and that would be really cool if I was. But I think in the near term, that's 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 pretty Im- improbable. But but I do think um, that they're going to pick up on some of the um, functional attributes that things like Bitcoin offer, right? Which is the ability um, to, to, to efficiently store um, value and, and then the ability to transfer it um, quite seamlessly and quite quickly without the need for intermediaries. And um, as central banks begin to adopt that, they have a back channel into some initiatives that many of the bigger central banks have been um, thinking about anyway, which is how do we open up the national payment system? I mean, that's one of the primary functions of a central bank is to manage these really important, you know, highly fault tolerant payment systems that support all of the, the commerce in the country and in and out of the country. So the real time gross settlement system, the wire system is obviously one of the most important ones. And as, as central banks look at issuing digital currencies, digital denominations, crypto versions of their own fiat currency, what they effectively do is create an extension 
of the real-time gross settlement systems that they have um, to uh, for use by the public domain, which has traditionally been a domain that you know only banks have access to. And I think they're more worried about the implications of and you know precipitating some unnatural digital run on the bank because you know they might think that you or I, if the if the Fed issued you know a, a Fed coin that that operated a lot like Bitcoin does, that was as easily accepted um, accepted and 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 readily uh, uh, traded as as Bitcoin is, that people would rush to take their deposits out of their banks that they don't trust, you know, and just hold them in a digital form, essentially on central bank balance sheet. And, and that's problematic. So I think they're thinking through the mechanics, um, of, of all of that stuff. But, um, I, I don't think it's likely that central banks are going to jump into the crypto space, um, beyond using the capabilities of crypto to issue their own assets. Got it. And I guess here's a, um, and I don't have an opinion here, but but I, I'm interested to hear how you guys have thought about this. As you're working on a lot of these blockchain technologies, right? You can go and you can service uh, what we'll just call kind of enterprise clients. You can go and you can work with these central banks or other uh, more government type um, or, or large uh, financial service companies or, or organizations. Um, but how much focus uh, does a large corporation like an IBM put on using the technology internally? So actually, you know, building things to be uh, deployed for either efficiency or, or, or uh, security sake internally versus using it as a, um, as a tool to go out to, uh, to clients with. Well, quite a bit. I mean, I think it's, it's really compelling um, when, you know, a, a company who's the inventor of a technology kind of eats its own dog food by using its own technology. And um, that's certainly the, the case here with IBM, uh, with blockchain from some of the early, early days, we, we did deploy um, an early uh, supply chain uh, application that, that kind of helped um, reduce um, the c- collections of, of, of payments in, in and amongst all of our suppliers. I think we've got um, a demo of that, even a really cool explainer of it uh, out on the, uh, the website. But, um, you know, as it relates to going to, to cash specifically and payments, especially for big multinationals, um, it, it's a big deal. Uh, you, you know, I mean, there, you know, IBM, take IBM as an example, IBM operating in you know, more than 160 countries, um, you know, we're making payroll and, and all of those places, cash management, you know, across the corporation is, is a pretty serious activity. Um, and if we can make that easier so that we're, you know, able to, to move money, um, across borders, and, and perform FX activities in more real time than the days or weeks that it takes, it eliminates a lot of hedging and a lot of expense and a lot, just a lot of um, inefficiencies. So yeah, it's, it's as important for, you know, big corporates as it is for, you know, banks and central banks. For sure. What, um, what would be the one thing you see from your seat um, that, that you wish a, a large majority of people knew that maybe they don't know? Is, is there something that kind of is surprising to you, um, whether it's in the corporate world or, or even maybe even personally, but you just have a very unique seat. And so what's something that, that you wish that everyone would learn? Well, one thing that comes to mind that, um, that, that I, I keep reading about too is, is sort of the, and you're, by the way, you're, you're a great guardian of the truth in this regard, I, I've noticed. But I, but I, 
I've, I've noticed that a lot of people tend to want to write about Bitcoin and write about cryptos as though they are the preferred tool of criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I won't say that criminals aren't dumb, but we should encourage criminals to use Bitcoin more because that's how we're going to catch them, right? <laughs> so, the, you know, this notion of, um, of crypto being, you, you know, more attractive to nefarious activities than cash is, is a really bad sentiment. We, we got to realize that, that even with Bitcoin and with some of the, the anonymity that's built in there, the movement of cash and the, the, the movement of money, the transfer of value is, you know, ultimately publicly and, and eternally traceable, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if there's any nefarious activity that's linked to any, you know, input into a Bitcoin account, you can follow that money. You can't do that with cash. You really, you really, really can't. And so that's one thing that, that I hope, um, you know, the detractors of crypto either start to learn more or to start talking more honestly about. Yeah. It, it's one of these things where, you know, the U S dollar by far on a volume basis is the choice currency of criminal terrorists, money launderers, you know, hold on yards. And, um, I, I think on top of that, you've got a world where, uh, law enforcement has, has a unique perspective in the sense that they would rather you, if you are going to commit a financial crime, do it with your hands on a keyboard, right? It, it is so much easier to track this stuff. What I do wonder is, um, how the regulatory or law enforcement officials across jurisdictions will start to work together, right? Does it become easier or harder as people work in a, um, you know, more global um, environment and now have, um, you know, financial products or services that, that can operate kind of more freely between those jurisdictions, the, the impact on how those regulators cooperate um, will be very interesting and, and we'll probably see, um, you know, some that continue to work together very, very closely and others that just say, you know, look, we, we, uh, we're not friends <laughs> and, and uh, make it more difficult, but, but I don't think we have that answer yet. Yeah, you're right. But, but I think, you know, for those, uh, well, I may, maybe, um, you know, lumping you into the category of, of, of my sentiment, but I mean, for those of us who would really like to see more transparency in the world in general, you know, particularly in, in politics and, and in finances and things like that. Um, I think in some ways the, the advent of crypto kind of forces parties to work together, right? Because they're working against a, you know, a data set, if you will, that's, that's publicly visible, right? I mean, so, um, the, the transparency is so much better with some of these things. Now I realize there's cryptos that are designed to, to kind of obscure transparency. Um, and you know, uh, th- that, that probably wouldn't fall into this category, but to your point, I actually think, you know, this technology, you know, is, is, is based in and around kind of promoting trust and transparency. And that, that is just generally speaking, a good thing for everybody. For sure. What, um, as you talk to the financial services clients specifically, right. And, and banks and things like that, where do you see the biggest opportunity to start applying some of this technology and, and the, um, you know, the, the kind of transparency that you're talking about? And, and I'll give you um, something to compare it to. Uh, I was having a conversation earlier um, with, with somebody about what would a bank look like if you took all of the components and replaced it by a blockchain solution? Not even saying it would be successful, but that would be 
pretty radically different. Where's kind of the first step or two um, if organizations do want to enter into this world that, that you really see the, the benefit or, or the, um, uh, the opportunity? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And um, it, it really leads into an area of investment that, that my team has, has been making the last you know, year and a half, which is around um, you know, payments uh, and international payments. But to, to kind of build up to that, what, what you were saying in that, that analogy or that um, hypothetical of, a, of building a bank around you know, blockchain or distributed ledger technology, think about it. A bank really is just a, a giant ledger or a set of interconnected ledgers. And one of the more efficient, uh, inefficient areas of banking is when um, you need to coordinate, um, you know, debits and credits, um, accounting entries, w- which represents essentially payments, the movement of money between counterparties across different ledgers that don't talk to each other. And the banks have and you know, and the central banks have facilitated and gone to great lengths over you know hundreds of years to, to make this process more efficient of connecting the individual ledgers of individual banks um, with each other. And nowhere is that more you know is the inefficiency more pronounced than in international transfers than in cross border payments where there is no central bank, there is no bank of banks uh, involved because you're, you're crossing jurisdictions, right? So there is no central bank of central banks that exists today. I don't know if it's a scary thing to think of the prospect of that happening. Um, you know, one central authority that controls all the banks in the world, that's kind of scary. But what if it was a one decentralized but trustable um, distributed ledger that provided that capability? I think that's that's really practical and and very realistic. And so <clears throat> we are actually seeing central banks and involved in activities with central banks uh, that are doing just that, right? So they're they're facilitating um, the the movement and and the exchange of of currency between their ter- their two jurisdictions between the two banks by simply sharing a distributed ledger, right? And then it just becomes, um, ledger entries on this common ledger, as opposed to all these machinations that you have to go through to, you know, kind of quote unquote, move money across border, which is facilitated today through this hugely inefficient thing called correspondent banking, right? Where one bank holds, you know, um, foreign deposits with another bank and an exchange creates foreign deposits uh, for that bank. And if you think about that too, um, Banks have this unique and maybe in some ways kind of unfair and kind of scary um, way of, of creating money um, in, in that sense where, you know, if, if one bank in, you know, in Europe says to another bank in, um, in the U.S., hey, I want to have, you know, 100 million U.S. dollars in the U.S. And the U.S. bank says, hey, no problem. We'll, we'll just create $100 million for you on our deposit system. And, and the offsetting entry is, well, you got to create $100 million worth of you know, foreign currency in your deposit system. You know, they've just essentially created money in two different places of the world without doing anything. Um, and I'm not sure that's cool, but I'm not an economist. So, you know, um, I, I can't go much deeper than that, but, <laughs> but I think it would be really, it would be really awesome. And where we're investing, you know, tangibly investing is in that cross border payments optimization space. And I think that's just a stepping stone to, to optimizing um, more things. And in that cross-border world, is that done with Bitcoin? Is that on something like um, Stellar, Ethereum? Where, like, how do you think of using the public 
chains versus maybe something you guys have built. Just, just walk me through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, um, a trivial process, right? Because of all of the laws in place in different jurisdictions that are, um, th- that are really designed to protect, you know, businesses and consumers, right? So there's a lot of know your customer activities that have to happen. There's a lot of, um, transaction monitoring activities to prevent, you know, or to detect, you know, money laundering. Um, and so there's, there's a, there's a portion of some of the solutions that we're building that, that is just, um, uh, handling the messaging and the hooks that allow the banks in different jurisdictions to do what they're good at. Um, and you know, that's, that's a, that process of payment messaging, you know, uh, is, is a required process that often goes under overlooked when, you know, someone is sending money to another person, but it comes is that process of, of one bank telling another bank they're sending money. And then the actual movement of that money um, those all those happen today on separate networks, and whenever you do transactions on separate networks, you've got you know reconciliation activities, got all this overhead that adds time and cost, etc. Um, and so the the novelty of what we're doing is um, trying to combine those two um, onto a single network. And, and you, it. I mean, the 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 way to um, actually. Uh, the, the secret sauce, the magic in the ability to do the settlement piece, the actual money movement piece in real time, as opposed to, you know, kind of at a band um, and taking multiple days is to actually transfer a digital asset, right? To actually transfer um, something that represents a digital store of value. And so, uh, yeah, that, that, that's kind of what we're doing. We, we are in, in our solution, um, I would say, and in our portfolio agnostic to, um, you know, individual uh, distributed ledger technologies. We have a really strong partnership with Stellar. We think from the standpoint of, uh, the creation of digital assets, um, and, and the scalability, the transactional scalability of being able to exchange those assets in real time, the Stellar network and the Stellar protocol is probably, you know, one of, one of the best um, out there right now. But we also have a very significant um, investment and commitment to Hyperledger um, and Hyperledger Fabric, which is a project in there um, that provides, you know, smart contracts. It's geared more toward permissioned networks and, and therefore more toward, you know, private networks. Um, so we'll make use of a combination thereof. Um, but, I, you know, I, I would say our strategy today is open to, um, to others. We've recently kind of joined as an associate member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Certainly, we can't ignore, um, you know, the developer community that's over there and, and want to be able to, um, you know, to, to take advantage of that. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'd say um, uh, Hyperledger Fabric, uh, Stellar, um, Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, these are all just indicative of of an evolving, um, solution story that is really DLT agnostic. Awesome. Um, all right. So before, uh, I wrap up, I usually ask a bunch of rapid fire questions. Uh, what do you think is your most controversial thought that a high majority of other people would disagree with? Um, that, uh, the, issuance of a retail or a publicly accessible central bank digital currency is a long way away. I, in other words, I think it's, it's coming imminently. Oh, you think that it's coming very, very soon. I do. You want to put a, uh, 
a, a timeline. We're, we, oh, I thought you were going to say, are we going to wager some Bitcoin on that? Uh, that's where I thought you were going. No, 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 no. Bitcoin only goes one way uh, in uh, in my world. It only comes in to go out. <laughs> that's good. Well, uh, so, I, you know, again, uh, I, I would say... Um, it won't uh, just to qualify that it, it, it um, likely won't be one of the, the big five central banks, but it'll be a, a, a central bank whose currency is probably pegged to one of the big five currencies through the reserves that they hold. And I would say, you know, you're going to see um, some kind of issuance in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. I mean, and, and I don't think that's a long time as I read, you know, others that are talking about not going to be 10 years or, or, whatever. So yeah, that's what I would pay on. All right. Other than IBM, what's the most important company in crypto? Uh, well, I, I, I'd probably say Stellar. I think what they're doing and doing it as a, a nonprofit, kind of doing it transparently is, uh, is, is pretty awesome. All right. And then um, what is uh, the one regulation that you would improve or change if you could? Um. I would improve, uh, and we are involved, I, I will say in, at least in the U S, um, at, you know, activities, uh, uh, around a legislation that seeks to improve the qualification of asset classes in this general category that we call cryptocurrency. I think, I think, um, there needs to be more clarity in asset classification. And I think the SEC has, has begun to do that with, you know, really kind of digging into a lot of these ICOs. Are they currencies? Are they securities? Are they commodities? Um, I, I think that's going to be really important. What's the most important book you've ever read? I like, uh, I like crossing the chasm and I'm dating myself when I, when I do that, but I'd say that's one of the most important books that, that I've ever read. All right. That, that's, no, I think that's a uh, very fair answer. Um, all right. I usually ask one non-crypto question and then we'll wrap it up and I let you ask me one question. So think of that question while uh, we talk about uh, aliens. Um, what is the probability that aliens exist? What is that number? Sentient uh, uh, beings or just life elsewhere? Ooh, good, uh, good clarification. Most people don't clarify. Uh, sentient. Uh, I'll go with a safe answer and say 50%. You think 50? Yeah. That's, that's low. Why so low? Well, I, you know, it's an expansive universe and, and I know we've only been here a short period of time, but, but we have, you know, well, except for maybe, you know, Roswell, New Mexico, we have no real, you know, <laughs> tangible things to point to that might suggest otherwise. All right. That's fair. Lack, lack of evidence. I'll, uh, I'll buy that. Um, all right. What, uh, what one question do you have for me? Um, what, what's your favorite crypto besides Bitcoin today? And I realize it can change, you know? Oh man. You, you already know my MO that, uh, I answer every question with the same answer. Um, my favorite Bitcoin other, or my favorite crypto other than Bitcoin so I'm going to caveat this and say it's not necessarily my favorite. I don't have favorites. I think I have um, things that I think bring value and things that I don't think bring value. If I had to, um, if I had to 
pick another one. I, I think I would go with Ethereum as uh, the crypto that is the second most important is the way I would frame it. And the reason is probably a little bit different. Most people will uh, likely focus on the technology and what exactly it can do. Uh, I'm much more interested in uh, the amount of intellectual capital that is being focused on it. Right. So there's just a ton of really, really smart people who uh, believe in it. They want to see it be successful. They're actively building all kinds of things, both, you know, improving the actual underlying um, network, but also building all of these uh, dApps and things on top of it. Uh, and then uh, I'll cheat a little bit and I'm going to add a second answer here because it's a project that it's not really a, a, a cryptocurrency uh, per se, but um Lightning Labs and uh, the Lightning Network uh, are fascinating to me. I mean, these people are um, building something that, if successful, uh, will change the way that money and value moves around the world. Um, but they're also building something that is incredibly young. It's literally less than a year old and uh, could fail at any point. And, and so I think that uh, anytime you have those asymmetric type uh, opportunities or, or events, um, it's, it's fascinating to watch who's building them um, and, and kind of what the outcome is. So, so I think that that would be my uh, two answers there. Awesome. No, that's great. I love it. I, I'm, I'm not uh, far off in, in, in agreement. Have you ever had uh, Joe Lubin on your show? We, we have not had Joe. We, uh, we just had Sam, who is uh, one, one of uh, Joe's very early partners there. And, uh, and it was a fascinating uh, conversation. So maybe we'll release uh, Sam before you so nobody knows that uh, Sam is coming. We usually don't uh, tell anybody who's on the way. All right, good, good. No, I was just curious because I've gotten to know Joe uh, fairly well um, in the last you know, uh, year or so. And I think he's a really interesting guy. He'd certainly like your answer. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, um, I am. Uh, I need as many allies in this uh, in this business as I can get. The uh, there's plenty of Twitter trolls. <laughs> I hear you. Well, you're doing a good job, man. I love I love uh, reading your uh, your stuff, and I think you're spot on and and uh, very and very objective, always positive. So that's really cool too. So thanks for what you're doing. Life's too short, man. I appreciate it, Jesse. Thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate taking the time to uh, to do this. I am uh, I'm cheering for you guys, and uh, let's uh, let's do this again soon. Awesome, sounds good. Thanks, Pop. Take care. All right, guys. I appreciate listening to that episode. I enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Before we go, I want to remind you that it was brought to us by The Grove, a full service creative and design agency that has worked with companies like Block, Chamber of Digital Commerce, AAA and the American Red Cross. You can check out more of their work at thegrove.co backslash pomp. Again, that's .co and not .com. Thegrove.co backslash pomp. Go check it out and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, Pomp here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.